If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be in Ephesians 3 this morning before we jump back into Philippians. Uh, Earlier this year, uh, the first of the year, I shared with you all our new uh, vision and mission statement. And then last week, we had kind of a little bit of a a meeting talking about the business of the church. And so I thought it was an important time for talking about those aspects of the church and our community to also let that be a reminder of what it is that we're all collectively doing here. What is the vision and mission that God has given us? And uh, I've been through in in different uh, organizational situations where... I've been part of groups that have been tasked with brainstorming and thinking through mission statements and those sorts of things. I imagine uh, a lot of the the percentage of the population this morning have done similar things. And uh, what was different about this season whenever we did this is that it was more than just asking, what do we want to accomplish? Which, you know, if if you do those exercises, you have these lists of questions for vision and mission statements. And, you know, what do you want to accomplish? What's it going to look like when you accomplish it? Those sorts of questions. And uh, what we did, though, um, instead of just asking the question, what do we want to accomplish? Is our mission and vision statement actually something that's already living and moving and breathing among us and we just need to take a moment to become aware of it and point it out so as we approached it that way and we thought about our community and we we we, we spent some time going on some prayer walks and spent some time alone thinking and reflecting and 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 really what we came up with is there's already a mission and vision that christ community church is doing we just need to name it we need to codify it and then we need to keep it out in front of ourselves more often to make sure that we are that what we do as a community is in faithfulness to the vision and mission that god has given us and so when we did that we realized there's something that god's already doing in our community there there are stories that we hear particularly of the people that have come in the past five years there's a commonality to the stories as to where their journeys have taken them and why the lord led them to this community and how this community has has empowered their walk and how they have contributed in turn to this community to community to empower ours. So even though we went through that uh, at the first of the year, what I wanted to do this morning is I want to spend just a little bit more time, less on the verbiage of the mission statement itself, although we'll do some of that, and look at the scripture and theological foundation, the underpinnings of this mission statement and why we are so passionate about it. And so I, I know I'm, you can find it in your notes, probably back on the second page. I'm not going to ask the computer operator to do this because I'm getting it all out of order. But I, I wanted to just be sure and just read the vision portion of the statement. Oh, it's, we state it this way. Our vision is to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. And what we discovered is in fact, people's journeys, a commonality of the journey of CCC is people coming into kind of a personal revival, a renewal of their experience and their understanding of what the faith is all about. So once again, thank you, uh, Cindy. Our vision is to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. Now, let's take a look at the paragraph in Ephesians that was an inspiration for how we gave language to the vision and mission statement. Let's read it together, and then we'll just kind of walk through this text together this morning. Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19. This is a prayer that Paul is praying that has a lot of rich theological content in the prayer itself. I pray 
that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that, everyone say so that, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, we're going to we're going to touch on this again before we leave the, this portion of our talk this morning. But I want you to notice that that last phrase is very important. All of that verbiage that comes before this prayer and this deep, rich theological content all serves a purpose. And Paul makes it clear what that purpose is. It is so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that phrase motivates what we do here at Christ Community Church. All the things that, that we approach, all the things we've heard in our backgrounds, Jesus saves us from sins, absolutely. If you, if you trust Jesus and you know that God's alive in your heart and that you have no anxiety about the day of your death, supposedly, because uh, on the day of your death, you know that you're going to go to heaven and not hell. All of these things are, are wonderful fringe benefits. They're not the primary thing that Jesus talks about when he calls people to follow him. And then if you go on into the New Testament, that's not the primary thing that Paul is preoccupied with. I'm not saying Jesus isn't quoted as talking about the kingdom of heaven, but he's not talking about a place that we fly away to after we die. He's talking about a right now present reality where we are choosing to live as citizens of that kingdom and therefore we live in the atmosphere of God's rule right now here on earth. Thus the reason why Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do you think that happens? It happens because the citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are living and breathing and interacting with other people on earth are bringing the atmosphere of that kingdom to bear wherever they go. And thus through his body, as we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, the Holy Spirit draws us in and recruits us to be the answer to that prayer and be the means through which the kingdom of heaven is present on the earth in our homes, in our communities, in our places of employment, wherever our foot may trod. And so, um, as we look at this, and we, so, 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 so all that to say, I am glad for being delivered of sin, I'm glad that uh, we know we get to go to heaven, but those goals are way too small and myopic in my view. My desire is that we banish the boredom of Christianity. My longing, my desire, my goal is 
not simply that you know where you're going to go if you get hit by a bus. It's not simply can you tell me about all the bad habits that following Jesus and memorizing scripture have helped you to overcome. My question is this, my brother and sister, are you filled with all the fullness of God? If the answer is yes, some, but I got more to go, fine, then there's more journey for us to go together. But the goal here in this community is collectively that we travel together and we live into this experience that Paul prays for, for the Ephesian congregation, which is this, not just that we stand up and say, praise the Lord, I don't say TT and duty anymore, I don't have any more bad words, praise the Lord, I don't do this anymore, praise the Lord, I'm going to heaven. I want us to be able to collectively say praise God because Jesus has taken a hold of my soul. I am filled with all the fullness of God. And therefore, as a being filled with the fullness of God, I'm gonna step out of my house and I'm gonna be the means through which the gracious God allows the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the vision. That's the longing. That's what we're all about. That's what motivates us in our planning and in our praying and in our conflict resolution, in everything that we are called to do, both the fun stuff and the parts that are more difficult, the longing, the vision that is in our heart is that we would be a people filled with all the fullness of God. Look at the language of this text. This, the text in this language is not about establishing what kind of doctrine we believe. It is about an experience and that experience is characterized, it's unmistakable. You can't miss it in reading just these four brief verses. That is about having an experience with the love of God that is ongoing, that is deepening, that, you, that we are experiencing the love in all its dimensions, length and width and height and depth that we are so rooted in the experience of that love that that experience is transforming us. And that's the goal, that's the desire to arrange our community and all that we do with all of our programs and discipleship and all of our encouragement with the express purpose that we don't want to be bored, passive people just being reminded what to believe. We wanna be invited in a continual renewal of the vital experience of experiencing being overwhelmed and washed in the love of God. And that experience then being the impetus that drives the transformation of our lives. This language here is very experiential. It says that the Christian faith is not primarily a cerebral faith. That's part of it, but it's primarily a faith from the heart in which we encounter and experience. It, it is recognizing that Paul knew all that, he knew all kinds of deep theological realities. He understood he was a teacher of doctrine, but it wasn't until he encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus that he was transformed. All of that information didn't do that. God may have used it, but that's not, that's not what changed him. What changed him is his encounter with the living Christ. And that's what we are jealous for in this community, that no one would be left behind and experiencing a life-transforming encounter with the living Christ, whereby their life is defined by this experience of the love of God. This language that Paul uses, through the Holy Spirit, we are strengthened with power in our inner being. You see how experiential that is? He's talking about this faith is about you being aware of what is going on in your soul. What are the movements of your soul? 
How has your soul been growing and expanding? How has your soul encountered a fresh experience of the love of God, a fresh encounter with the mercies of God? This is the God whose mercies we celebrate are new every single morning. We don't have to live off of old mercies. They are available every single day that you open up your eyes. You are greeted by a universe characterized by new mercies for you and for the people that you're going to encounter. Now look at the language. Look at Paul's prayer, the structure, the way, look at his rationale, his logic and the flow of all of this. There are basically three requests here that all have to do with love, every single one of them. I am not of the conviction that Christians can talk about love and grace too much. Some people are of that conviction. I am not. I don't think we can talk about it enough. And when we experience it and we see that that is God's ordained means of transforming us, we will no longer be ashamed or embarrassed to consistently celebrate the love and grace of God. Paul says this, number one, his request is that the Ephesians will be rooted and firmly established in love. We're not talking about a casual concept. We're talking about the soul being touched by the love of God in such a way that it redefines our entire self-concept. So that when people say, who are you and what do you do? You say, I am a child of God made to receive his love and to be an expression of that love on earth. That's... And you get to have that regardless of what you do for a living, how many kids you have, whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're what ethnicity background. I'm a child of God created to be a recipient of God's love and then to be one through whom that love is expressed throughout the other people of the world. That's who we are because we cannot be altered by what we learn, what we know, how many hours we log in church. God uses all these things, but at the end of the day, those things are means. They're not the end. What is the end? For your soul to be resting in the love of God, for you to be continually renewed in the experience of the love of God so that you can say, you're not just aware of it. You didn't just encounter it in a really good worship service or in a camp service when you were younger, but your life is defined by the atmosphere of the love of God because you have become rooted and established. We, we, we are growing um, plants at our house. Well, now that I've said that, there's no telling what you're thinking, so I'm going to have to fill in. We got to hold us some good tobacco plants. Good old Chickasaw tobacco. And uh, uh, we've got a shed ready to, you know, to, to age it and all that. But and my son-in-law, who's a horticulturist, and I don't want to say anything negative about him. God bless him and his training because he has saved us. However, we got a little bold, put the plants together. We went out a few night, nights ago and they were all turning yellow and getting droopy, except for one. And my son-in-law assures me, don't worry, that's my experiential plant. Now I, knew, now I know I need to do with all the rest what I did with this one. And so what it was is that the soil was too shallow. They couldn't thrive. So he spent all day long reworking the, 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 the soil, replanting, repotting, so there's plenty of, of, of soil for the tobacco plant's roots to go down in, and already they're perking up. And as I looked at that, the Lord spoke, not about my tobacco use or to encourage anyone else's tobacco use, 
But I was reminded of this phrase, rooted and established in love, that if your roots don't go down deep, then the fruit that you bear is weak. And then we read books on how to get better fruit. What all you need to do to get your fruit better. Make you feel guilty. Well, that's really pathetic fruit. Look at your brothers and sisters and their fruit. But it's not about learning how to do better fruit. It's about have you asked the question, where's your foundation? Are you casually rooted in the, in the love of God? Or are you deeply rooted in the love of God? So much so that it defines your very own self concept so that the fruit of the spirit born in your life is thriving so that you can be there to nourish other people that need to consume that fruit. This is not a casual. This is making your life about living into the experience of the love of God so that you never doubt it for one millisecond of your life ever again, regardless of the narrative in your head, the lies of the enemy, or the failures of your behavior. You nonetheless still rest in that rootedness of the love of God, rooted and firmly established in love. This is God's agape love, which doesn't just mean love, but it's good will. Do you live deeply rooted in a God whose will towards you is good? That his posture is positive, that when he thinks of you, when you think of him, when you come into his presence, there is not a scowl, a frown, or a tear, but a smile. Is that the God you live with every day of your life? My experience is too many Bible Belt Christians live with a God mostly sad or mad. Too few of us live with a God who is eternally glad. But that's the God that sings over you. That's the God that has done all that he can to remove any obstacle, both real and imagined, to set you free to live life in his presence. And we want the vision of this church to be all about that reality, uh, that we are rooted in the goodwill of God. Second request is that the Ephesians would comprehend the length, the width, the height, and the depth of what? God's love. This word comprehend is a word that means to take hold of exactly with decisive initiative and eager self-interest. I love that because the greatest power you have to be a blessing in someone else's life is that you grasp God's love for you first that you are aggressive, that you are focused, and that you're living in that reality because you will never give anyone kindness, grace, and love but, but beyond that which you're willing to give yourself in your darkest, most disappointing moments. So in those moments, we want to cultivate a community that we are all learning as individuals to be so deeply rooted in God's love that even in those moments when we're most about to doubt it, we have pursued a secret life in God so that we have taken the initiative to grasp a hold something, to apprehend it. Look at the bottom line. The connotation is making it one's own. So it's the call, not just as a community, but also for the individual to make it a passion of their life. It's too small to want to be a good Christian. You should want to be filled with the fullness of God and radically transformed by how deeply rooted in his love that you are. That's a much higher and much more effective and much more compelling goal for our life. 
So he prays that the Ephesians will be firmly rooted and established in love. He prays that the Ephesians will be able to comprehend the full dimension of the depth of God's love. And then he prays that the Ephesians will know Christ's what? Love that surpasses knowledge goes beyond getting together to make sure we line up all our beliefs and that we can out-argue those beliefs with anyone who may disagree with them. That, that is not what this is. Look, the life of the mind is rich. It is a gift. We are not anti-intellectual. We love going deeply into the life of the mind. But what we recognize is this, our beliefs, our beliefs are not enough. We have to have those beliefs and they have to be brought alive in the presence of the love of God in order to transform our behavior. And so we recognize that this is an experience that goes beyond our ability to take away its mystery and explain it away and to codify everything there is to understand about it. We recognize the experience of the love of God ought to go beyond the limits of our finite minds. And Paul recognizes this. He says there's an experience of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. And it's a reminder that who we love is much more significant than what we know. Who we love is much more significant than what we know. There are limits to what we know, aren't there? There's only so much time I can listen to the podcast. There are only so many books that I can read. There are only so many classes I can sit through. But guess what? There's no limit to the gift of being to immediately access awareness of the presence of God and to speak and to live into my love for Christ and to rest in his love for me. The most important doctrine of the Christian faith, the most important to believe is willing, whether or not you're willing to accept God's acceptance of you. That's the most important thing for you to conquer. That's the most important reality for you to overcome before you can grow into all that God has intended for you. And so who we love is much more significant than what we know because God transforms us by loving us. God transforms us by loving us. God transforms your brothers and sisters by loving your brothers and sisters. God transforms your enemies by loving your enemies. God transforms us by loving us. So the experience and resting in the love of God cannot be cannot be separated from our desire to grow and to learn and to transform and to become healthier people. We become healthier by learning how to rest in God's love for us. Now, we said this at the beginning, but it's worth repeating. Ask the question, why? Because Paul anticipated it with the phrase, so that. Why does Paul want the Ephesians to be rooted and firmly established in love? to comprehend the length, width, height, and depth of that love, and to know that love beyond just intellectual affirmation, so that, so that, so that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. The way we are filled with all the fullness of God is by being rooted and firmly established in love. 
The way that we are filled with all the fullness of God is by comprehending the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. The way that we are filled with all the fullness of God is by knowing Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Do you see how critical Paul recognizes this experience is? I will say it this boldly. This is not Paul, this is Artie speaking. We cannot grow in Christian spirituality until we let love love us. And yes, that love is a capital L because we're told that is the essence of who God is. I shared with you, I think last time, I wanna share it again, Ephesians 3.17, just that one bit of this paragraph. This is from the Passion Translation. And he states it this way. I broke it down so that we could kind of more clearly see the ideas, but this is all the text of the scripture. Then, by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside you. And the resting place of his love will become the very source and root of your life. That's the prayer is that the resting place of Christ's love will become the very source and root of your life. That is our vision. That is the mission we have been given. From that celebration of the transformative power of the experience of God's love, we've articulated our vision this way. Our vision is to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. So if that's the vision, if that's what it looks like to be faithfully bearing fruit to the vision that God has given us, how do we execute that? In other words, what is the mission of this particular body of Christ here in Southern Oklahoma? Our mission is very, very simple. It is simply this. Our mission is to equip people to be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. To be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. We emphasize different parts of this the last time we talked about it. So I'm gonna <clears throat> emphasize more the last half of the mission statement this time. You can go back and find that sermon. I think, oh, it was January 29th, my 50th birthday. I noticed that this week. So <clears throat> there you go if you're interested. What does it look like to participate in our mission? Well, first of all, to be, God's calling you to be part of this community. We believe he's calling you to participate in this mission. So all of us, not just communally, we're not just communally accountable to this vision. As individuals, we are in some way saying, yes, that speaks to my heart. The Holy Spirit is aligning me with the mission and vision of this community. That's why I wanna participate in it. First of all, it means to be true to Christ. You'll hear a lot about the CCC values. Those values are uh, communion, community, and compassion. 
This idea of being true to Christ is how we express our value of communion. Because when we say that, we're not talking about just the act of communion, although that's important to us. That's why we take it every Sunday. But we are celebrating the fact that to be a Christian is, and to be in Christian community is to be in participating in a common union with Christ. And in that common union with Christ, we are experience common union with one another. Again, we come from different backgrounds, different theological convictions. We want to talk about those. We don't want to pretend like those differences don't exist. But what we recognize is we don't have to conform to one another's ideology in order to be in community with one another because we are all collectively called to a higher purpose, which is to walk out our common union with Christ. And so that looks like being true to Christ. One of the things that one of the disturbing developments over the past 150 years of evangelical Christianity is there's been a shift from following Christ to believing in Christ. Now, I don't think that you have to make those two realities compete. I believe belief is important because it informs our following. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is I would challenge anyone who would say the perspective of the message of the New Testament is that we're saved by believing in Christ without following Christ. I would challenge that sentiment because although there are lots of Christians that believe that's true, I do not see that as being the core of the message of Jesus nor of the writers of the New Testament. So what we are talking about is that we want to value more than just saying, what do you believe about Jesus so I can make sure you're authentic Christians? I'm not all that interested in that question, not nearly in compared to the passion I have with, tell me about your following. How is your following of Jesus changing your life this week? How did it change it this week? How do you anticipate your following Jesus this week is going to alter the circumstances that you're facing and maybe even dreading this week. We want to return to a purity of a discipleship that is not written just to inform, but to transform. Because just knowing the facts about Jesus doesn't change us. We're changed when we begin to follow Jesus, which, by the way, was his original message. Come and follow me. So for us, that simply means to trust him as savior, to know him as friend, to walk with him in intimacy and to obey him as Lord is that we recognize this, that Jesus expects followers to obey what he calls them to do. Not rocket science. It's not real deep, but it's a purity of a, of a virtue that is often overlooked in contemporary discipleship circles. And we don't want to overlook that. We want to be responsive to living the life that Jesus is calling us to live because it is when our life looks like Jesus that we're being used by God to be an incarnation of the presence of God just as our Lord was an incarnation of the presence of God. So it would mean to be true to Christ by trusting him as savior, knowing him as friend and obeying him as Lord. Secondly, it's the call to be kind to all people. This is the call to community. And it's the challenge that we see our community as extending well beyond the people that we just go to church with. 
It's, it's the people that we live with, the people that we work with, the people from different nationalities, different faiths, different lifestyle backgrounds. We recognize that we are called to posture ourselves toward those outside of this organization, not as antagonistic nor as enemies, but as our community that we are all being called to serve. And we want to do that by being kind to all people. And people would say, I don't really like that, Artie. That sounds too soft. Why can't we just say that we want to love all people? Because we Christians will consistently redefine love so it's unkind as long as it's right. As long as the cause is right or true, then I can, I can dispatch kindness and show them my true tough love. I call foul on that. It is ridiculous that we fall for that kind of rhetoric for so very long. Number one, kindness does not mean compromising. We are still discerning about behavior. There are still standards that we want to protect the community from those individuals who are so deeply needing the transforming love of God that they're harmful for others. We don't want to provide opportunities for that. We will be discerning. However, we also want to let them know, we believe God can change you. We believe God can transform you into someone you never thought you were able to do. And in fact, we believe it was his intent from the moment he fashioned you in your mother's womb. And we hope and pray that the spirit would help you see it too, so that we can understand how we're called to walk with you. So kindness doesn't mean compromise. Kindness means being kind. It means that we're willing to extend grace, to refuse judgment, and to serve joyfully. Remember, when Jesus took up the basin and the towel, the disciple that he loved was there, John. But there was also a betrayer, a doubter, and a denier. And the one that he loved, he served all four equally. And we, we don't want to just mimic that action. We want that kind of capacity to be in our heart because our heart has been so enlarged by the continual experience of being filled with the fullness of God that we have a whole different capacity for love and mercy than we had when we first started following Jesus. I believe that this aspect is so pivotal that it is going to be the impetus to for the third awakening in the United States. I believe that with all my heart. We have so undermined the power and the virtue of kindness that it is going to take center stage as the fruit of the spirit and it will be so powerfully used by God. It'll be part of what renews the expression and understanding and experience of Christianity in our generation. Kindness is a powerful virtue. And we don't have too much time, but I did want to spend a little more time on it. I want you to be challenged with some of the verses that reveal the power of kindness. Look at Romans uh, 2.4, and it's not in your notes. I thought about this earlier this morning, so you can write it in the margins. This is Romans 2.4 that I'll be reading from. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's Kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. What leads us to repentance? Kindness. Not shaming, not judging, not preaching, not shunning, not rejecting. It is kindness. 
And the more we create an atmosphere that is characterized by kindness, the more the Spirit will call people to repentance without us having to do his job for him. We just respond to the call of kindness. Here's even even more challenging one. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Not you'll be like children of the Most High, you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. The God in whose image you have been fashioned is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Two of the categories that we justify our unkindness toward. Your God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. You know, it is interesting because we were taught um, if you want to be saved or be a child of God, there's verses that we were taught to go to. One of them may have been... uh, Believe in your heart uh, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That is a way. It's interesting. It's one of the answers that scripture gives, not the only one, but it's one of them that it gives and that's the one we camp on as the path. But do you realize that by that same standard of answering that question and applying scripture, that I could say, if someone were to say, Artie, how do I become a Christian? How am I born again? How do I become a child of God? It would be just as legitimate, even if I didn't mention all the doctrinal stuff for me to say, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back, and your reward will be great, and you will be a child of God. Why not that? Well, let's use that one for the plan of salvation next time, why don't we? What do I need to do to be a child of God? You gotta go love your enemies. You gotta be kind to them. And you have to, get, you have to be present to help them if they need help without requiring any payback in return. This is what it means to walk the path of Jesus. This is what it means to be a child of God. And finally, the last phrase in our mission statement is to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. This is our value of compassion. Jesus told his original followers, take this gospel and proclaim it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And so what we want to ask is you're being transformed by the love of God and you're understanding that your Christian walk is way more about your self-improvement. It's way about getting rid of your moral bad habits and having good moral habits. It's way beyond that. It's for you to be the contact point between heaven and earth. It's for you to be the one through whom God is loving the world in your generation. And once you begin to see that, then you ask yourself, okay, 
what is this idea of Jerusalem and then Judea, which Jerusalem is in Judea, and then Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth? Where is your Jerusalem? Where is your Judea? Where is your Samaria? And how is God calling you to work the liberating gospel that pushes, banishes injustice and oppression throughout the ends of the earth? How is God, we want to ask that, how is God calling us to do that? But how is God calling you to do that? Your Jerusalem, this is your relational sphere of influence. It's the reason why our vision is not to equip you to be good Christian parents and good Christian wives and good Christian husbands. No, we want you to see your calling to Jerusalem, your most intimate sphere of influence to not just be good, but to be the access point of the love of God. That the people in that circle experience living mercy and love because you're there obediently following Jesus. So we value children and youth and we value parenting and having healthy marriage relationships, not because it's the Christian thing to do, but it's because it's God's supernatural plan for transforming the world. We don't want to encourage toxic marriages and unhealthy parenting as you drive to church and then get out of the car and smile and sing songs and listen to a sermon. Some of you did that this morning. I, of course, am beyond that. That never happens to me because I had to get here earlier when I took this job and we drive separate cars. And so that battle has been eliminated for me. Judea, this is not just your relational sphere of influence. This is your sphere of concern. This is what God puts passion on your heart. What is it? Is, is it about a certain people group? Is it about a cause of injustice? Are you bothered because we disrespect and live in ingratitude toward the creation that God has given us? You don't have to over-spiritualize this. Maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's learning how to grow organic tobacco leaves. I don't know what it is, but what I am saying is God has a sphere of concern to you that's unique. It's a whisper of the spirit for how he's calling you to manifest the presence of God here on earth is in that sphere of concern. What is it? Are you aware of it? Are you aware of the way God's been stirring in your heart through things you may have interpreted as negative, like maybe you've been restless, maybe you've been anxious, maybe you felt out of place. Maybe it's because you're not paying attention to the sphere of concern that the Holy Spirit is moving you into. And then finally, the challenging one, Samaria. This, these are the heretics, okay? These, for his audience, would have been the heretics, those of false religion, and those who were far from God. And he says, take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. This is the sphere of the other. And that's different for all of us. Who is your other? Who are the people that hold the ideas that you think are tanking our country? Who are the people group that you just say, oh, man, I just can't get, I can't go there. Can't understand that. There's got to be a standard somewhere. You know, the one group that you can not love. 
Maybe that's the other that the Holy Spirit is calling you to go serve and love. One of the challenges for my life that I wrestled with for a long time and now for the good or the bad I'm content to live into is that I know I belong to people that the church finds offensive. I know it's so bad that if I couldn't do both things, I would have to let go of the church involvement because God has called me to love and serve people the church finds offensive. And I don't want to miss the opportunity that God is extending to me in that. Who is your other? Not who you're just being called to tolerate, but who you're being called to love and to serve and to understand in a way that you might not today. Because you're not going as the expert, you're going to them as the student so that you can hear their stories and understand their pain and understand their lives and you can maybe begin to be a vessel through whom the spirit of intuition and, deter and discernment grows and you recognize this person that I would have called my enemy, there's something broken that the Holy Spirit is longing to heal and he's given me the privilege to be one of the means through which he executes and, 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 and uh, manifests that healing into their soul. Now, this is powerful Jesus stuff. Facebook, which I have off my phone right now because it gets me into trouble. One of the things I got really in trouble with, not from actually anybody in my current community, but from friends from past communities, is that uh, we used to have something called a blog party years ago. Uh, Grant Huggins kind of instigated, got the conversation going after we went to an outreach few uh, in Missouri and uh, then we started we found a location we found a neighborhood and we just went showed up to bless the neighborhood we, to make hot dogs to play music to play with the kids on the playground eventually it, it was such a beautiful moment in the history of the church we, we were then invited to go into the homes of people that we would have never walked into their homes I remember one young man in particular who when he turned 18 he had some emotional challenges, and so um, life was difficult for him, and he didn't have a lot of friends. When he turned 18, he found out when we were coming for the next block party, postponed his birthday because he wanted to celebrate his 18-year-old birthday with us, his friends. I don't think he or his family ever made it to church. But they watched for us every single month. And I remember one time we were getting ready to go and I just thought it would be, you know, how you are, you're 20, you're gonna be clever on Facebook and get a lot of likes. And I put, today we go to be converted by our friends. Today we go to outreach to be converted by our friends. Then I got a lot of pushback and I kind of dialogued and put, and we, anyway, that's behind me. Really, that was just a setup to, to make the point. When we do outreach, we go first to be converted. And by that, I don't mean we lose our faith and change our belief system. I mean, we go to listen, to hear stories, to understand someone we find offensive, to understand someone that we're frankly a little bit afraid of. 
because we want to hear their story because that's where you can see where God has already been placing his witness in their lives at this turn and that turn. And you might get to be there with the discernment to point that out. Have you ever thought about this? Oh, I'm not bringing God to you. He's been pursuing you ever since he fashioned you in your mother's womb. I just get to be here at the intersection point where maybe some experiences and insight have led to a new awareness so you can see it for the first time. That's what it means to bring someone to Christ. That's what it means to share your faith. That's what it means to do outreach, the sphere of the other. And then finally, to the world and beyond. So worship team comes forward. I would ask you to just consider how God is is calling you to renew your involvement and understanding of your place in the mission and vision of this church. When it comes to your walk with Jesus, where is the Holy Spirit asking you, inviting you to explore a little more deeply? Is it in trusting him as savior? Is it in knowing him as friend? Or is it in obeying him as Lord? That's question number one. The question number two, that I would ask that you consider that you would be on your heart as we come together for communion is this. Who is the other that you're being called to love more intentionally? You may not know or you may know and you don't really like the question. That's okay. That's part of the journey too because God's also after your transformation in the process of their transformation. Who is the other that you're being called to love more intentionally. Now, I called the worship team up and in doing so, it triggered a memory. We are not gonna have the worship team come up. We're gonna do something a little different. We're gonna create a powerful contemplative, contemplative atmosphere because of the skills of our DJ. DJ Shady Sean in the house. Not so Shady Sean now that he's been transformed by the love of God. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have brought up your past life. (laughs) He's going to play something uh, contemplative that we've been thinking about, so I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and all stand. And then you know the drill. We'll start from the back corner and come up on this side. We'll start from that, my left-hand corner in the back row of the middle. You'll come around this side, and then this one right out here. I think Tim's usually our guy. maybe, Maybe there's someone further back. Yeah, there he is. Come to the back row in that corner, just come back around to your seat and you can go to your seat and you can take communion. But as you're there, as the music's playing, use this space to, to create a little atmosphere in your heart where you say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Who are you calling me to love with greater intention?
keep pressing into the question. This is what makes our faith so adventurous. The Holy Spirit has an answer to it. Keep pressing in until you find it. Thank you so much for coming. Please go and love as you've been loved. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And serve as you've been served. You are dismissed.